Welcome to the AIER Standard, a production of the American Institute for Economic Research. I'm Ethan Yang. On this episode, I sat down with AIER's Phil Magnus and Michael McCovey to discuss a forthcoming academic paper analyzing the efficacy of lockdown policies. This paper is particularly important because the scholarly debate about lockdowns devoid of the fear, anxiety, novelty, and partisanship that made any real discussion of these policies impossible has only just begun. Their paper adds an important contribution using relevant data and detailed analysis to argue that lockdown policies failed to provide any significant reduction in excess deaths. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So to begin, uh, to refresh our audience, I'm sure we all remember uh, what happened in March of 2020. But when we, we use the word lockdowns, what exactly are we, are we referring to? Like, what are we studying at the moment? Yes, this is a suite of policies that uh, often came under the heading of lockdowns, the, the formal term that's more often used. It's a subset of what are called non-pharmaceutical interventions or measures that are not related to therapeutics and treatments for a disease, but are nonetheless uh, designed and intended to stop the disease. Uh, so if we go back to March 2020, uh, this involved a range of measures that were enacted by governments across the world. Uh, they included things like sheltering in place at home for a fixed period of time, canceling public events, uh, shutting down non-essential businesses, shutting down in-person schooling, basically all with the aim of inducing people to stay in their homes for the maximum amount of time and reduce and limit the number of contacts they have with other persons in the general public. So when we use the term lockdowns, um, and, you, and you're throwing in a, a, a number of different policies like school closures, stay-at-home orders, uh, where exactly did these ideas come from and why were they implemented worldwide? Right, so almost all of the intellectual bases behind lockdown theory came from epidemiology modeling. And this is something that had been uh, discussed for many years before. In fact, we go back to the early 20th century, the Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, there were attempts to uh, enact similar policies in certain cities, and in particular on U.S. military bases uh, during World War I, of basically getting people to confine themselves in home, shutting businesses, canceling events to stop the spread of the Spanish flu. So epidemiologists have been studying these for the better part of a century. Uh, but the really interesting thing is all the evidence that we had from the last major worldwide pandemic uh, uh, from the Spanish flu in which these measures were attempted is that they did not work. Uh, they didn't achieve anything they set out to do. Uh, we had some uh, smaller examples from uh, more recent uh, disease outbreaks such as the Ebola crises that uh, have played out over the last couple of decades. Uh, every time there's an Ebola outbreak, they've tried different responses. And one of the conclusions from that is uh, attempts at uh, forced home quarantine generally didn't work. It caused people not only to modify their behavior and under-report when, uh, when they were feeling ill, but uh, it, it also uh, uh, simply didn't stop the spread of the disease in the way that the models uh, claim to do. Uh, but nonetheless, in uh, uh, the early 2000s, as computer techniques became more sophisticated, uh, a certain branch of the epidemiology profession started to uh, do computer simulations of what would happen 
in the event of a major pandemic. Uh, these were based oftentimes on video games. So uh, if you remember in the late 1990s, there's a popular video game called SimCity 2000. Uh, it bred all these uh, derivatives, including The Sims. And uh, the idea here was that you could pull these different levers in society and um, um, empirically uh, determine the course of human interactions in, a, in an entire city or an entire town. Uh, and in so doing, you could take some of that same concept and probabilistically map, uh, based on the number of times people interact, whether they're going to pass the disease. And that was the basis for the academic work that led to the uh, advocacy of lockdowns in March 2020. Mm. So it, it's almost, it starts off as, it makes sense logically, you know, if you think about it for a few seconds, sure. perhaps we should restrict people from seeing one another to stop the spread of communicable diseases. Um, but why were the why were the results so mixed um, when it comes to uh, lockdowns being implemented across the country as your paper studies? And why do you think there were different outcomes so broadly? Yeah, so this is the big question we set out to answer. Um, we went back and found reports from as recently as 2019 by the World Health Organization where they studied the possibility of lockdowns in response to a worldwide pandemic of influenza. Uh, it's a very close uh, style of a disease uh, to uh, COVID-19, and really that was the, uh, the type of uh, modeling that was adapted to COVID-19. But what the World Health Organization noted in 2019, as did uh, dozens of other scientists that have worked on this, is that um, the conceptual basis for lockdown policies had a very weak uh, evidentiary background behind it. There was no uh, randomized controlled trial. There were no empirical analyses that showed that these measures actually worked. It was all based on theoretical modeling. And that theoretical modeling, uh, you know, it looks like a neat and tidy result, but it faces the same problem that every central plan from the economy uh, to public health on down uh, faces. And that is, it requires some very strong and very liberal data assumptions uh, to fit into the model uh, in order to get the results that you want. So uh, you have to know very precise uh, figures about the characteristics of the disease, its transmissibility, uh, its fatality rate. You also have to know precise uh, data about how humans interact in public. And it turns out if you scrutinize these models, the most famous one being the Neil Ferguson Imperial College model, uh, which we discussed in the paper, we look at its performance uh, one year later, it performs abysmally in every different scenario that they tried, it overshoots the number of COVID-19 deaths. But if you look into the, uh, the mechanics of the model, it's not really based on experimental evidence, it's not based on other data, it's all uh, kind of guesstimated assumptions. It's like we close schools and 75% of in-school contacts reduce, uh, whereas house household contacts increase by 25%. These are all just like guesstimated nice round numbers that they fit into the model. Well, the problem is if you do that for the entirety of your model construction, you're basically guaranteeing the result uh, that you're going to get no matter how many times you run that model. And uh, they do it over and over again. And of course, they get uh, a model projection that says that lockdowns are going to work in stopping a disease because that was hard-coded into the assumptions. Hmm. Let me just add to that that any model, whether it's um, a predictive model um, or you know, where you're trying to predict the future or a statistical model where you're taking past data and trying to measure any model is built on the assumptions of, that are built into the model. Um, 
you know, so whether you, it, let, let, let's start with the statistical model. If you're estimating the effect of a variable X on a variable Y, it all depends on, you're telling the computer, here's an equation. The equation has some unknowns in it, but let's say you say something like Y equals beta times X. Please estimate beta for me. Well, you're telling Y that there's a linear, you're telling the computer there's a linear relationship between X and Y. If instead I ask the computer, tell me the relationship between Y equals beta times X squared, I would get a completely different beta because now Absolutely. I'm telling the computer there's a different, now it's not X affects Y, it's X squared affects Y. Well, the same way with um, these kind of epidemiological models, um, the result you get is based on the model you give it. In this case, we have to further realize the model is a hypothesis to be tested. You're saying based on this model I've built that I think people interact in a certain way, we'll get a certain result. Okay, that's, that's a nice, that's plausible. I mean, it's prima facie. Um, it's certainly plausible to imagine that if you lock people in their homes, they'll interact less and, you know, the disease will get spread less. But let's go, that's a hypothesis. We don't know it's true until we go and test it and find out if reality actually played out the way you thought your model would. Mm. So that brings me uh, to the substance of your paper. And I'd like to get into uh, some of the methods that you use and what differs your paper from other papers. Because like we've mentioned, there's been a number of studies. Some of them right. have confirmed that lockdowns didn't work. Some of them supported the, the efficacy of lockdowns. So really briefly, what is... You, in your paper, you actually mentioned that it's only it's the second of two papers that use uh, what you what you classify as an excess mortality um, data. So, what what is what is your paper doing, and why do you think? How does that distinguish it uh, from other papers that might have been more flawed? Yeah, so uh, I can do some of the the overview of the literature review and get Michael to to walk us through uh, the mechanics of of what we actually did in our test. Uh, so what we noticed is very early on, as, as they're asking these questions, did, did lockdowns work? And, you know, this is a huge policy question as COVID-19 is playing out uh, because we want to figure out how to address this pandemic. And it turns out that if the, uh, the thing that was promised for two weeks to flatten the curve is not, in fact, flattening the curve, is not delivering on what it's, uh, it's claimed to do, uh, we need to investigate why because we need to change course in the policy sphere. Uh, what we found is that of, of the many studies that have asked this question about how lockdowns performed, uh, they were using inappropriate message, uh, methods for making a causal claim, making a claim that lockdowns worked. Uh, in other words, we found a whole category of papers they use what we describe as modeling calibration exercises. And this is a form of, of really kind of a circular reasoning. What they do is they take their own model, they assume it's true, they assume it's valid for all the reasons Michael just said, uh, that's hard-coded into the assumptions, and they compare the results of their model to what actually happened in practice. And sometimes they'll, they'll calibrate it together so uh, uh, that they, they try to track uh, the performance during the pandemic. Uh, but nonetheless, the result that they're using as their baseline of comparison versus what actually happened is not rooted in evidence. It's rooted in the projection of this theoretical model. Uh, the most famous of these papers came out in the journal Nature in, uh, I think it was uh, late May, early June 2020. And it was, again, by the Imperial College Group. And uh, what they did in this paper is they run a version of their own model. They look at the actual data of, uh, of COVID's performance up until that point in Europe, and they 
subtract one from the other, and they assert, well, okay, our, our model said 2 million people would die, um, only 100,000 have up until this point, therefore we saved uh, 1.9 million people. Uh, so it's a really superficial way of, uh, of making an assertion, but it's also inappropriate from an empirical basis. And as we investigated this, we, uh, we looked across the literature that developed in the first year or so of COVID, and it be became clear that the papers that were being cited the most as evidence that lockdown worked uh, were all of this type of this, um, uh, this modeling calibration approach, uh, which is really just kind of a junk social science claim. It's inappropriate for the claim that they are making. It may be an appropriate exercise uh, to develop and further refine models. It's not uh, suited at all whatsoever to answering the question of whether uh, there is a causal link between lockdowns and the reduction of deaths and the reduction of cases in COVID. Michael, do you have anything to add to that? Um, no, I think Phil pretty much All yeah, right. Yeah. Well, covered. <laughs> All right. So uh, when you talk, so what differentiates, what, what, why did you focus on the excess mortality data itself and how do you obtain that and how do you really flush through and really bring out a result? Because the end result was you conclude that lockdowns uh, had basically no real effect on the, the overall outcome. Uh, so how, how, how does the excess mortality data play into that? Okay, yeah, so um, purely theoretically, we'd want to measure how many people died of COVID and tested lockdowns reduce COVID deaths. Uh, the one problem, though, is that COVID deaths are very likely to be mismeasured for a variety of reasons, right? Early in the pandemic, before we uh, fully knew exactly what COVID is, right, maybe just the symptoms aren't always clear. So you maybe someone has COVID, but we think at first we think they have the flu because, right, it's new. Maybe doctors don't always know what it is. Uh, so you could imagine maybe as the pandemic continues, we get better and better at diagnosing COVID. So that itself is going to create a time-varying mismeasurement bias. You know, presumably the bias gets smaller as time goes on. On the other hand, though, uh, people come to the hospital, let's say they, they die with COVID of a heart attack. Well, you know, what did they die of? Did they die of COVID or did they die of the heart attack? What if maybe they were going to die of a heart attack anyway, but what if COVID made them die a year sooner than they otherwise would have died? And we can't even observe that, but we can imagine there's a lot of people that maybe COVID exacerbated, you know, their under their pre-existing uh, conditions. And what do you call that? Which, which, what do you say they died of? Um, and so that's going to create um, an additional uh, bias. And then there's sometimes speculation that, what if hospitals, for example, were paid differently for a COVID death than a non-COVID death? That in introduces an additional bias. Now, that bias itself is controversial. Some people don't think that that bias really existed. But the point is, even if you completely discount that bias, the other biases I just listed still exist. Uh, so one way or another, uh, COVID deaths are going to be uh, mismeasured, and all the more so COVID cases. Um, at least a COVID death, we know the person is dead, and we're pretty good at diagnosing death. Um, you know, cases you go all, all the way back to the beginning of the pandemic, and we didn't even have tests for several months. Uh, so many people thought that they had COVID uh, just based on the symptom diagnosis, but no way to confirm it. And by the time they've recovered, we don't really know if that's a COVID case. Was it the flu? Was it a cold? Was it something else? Uh, so the case data, especially really early on, is, is extremely poor. Uh, in COVID-19. And I, I think no matter where you stand on the policy response, almost everyone admitted that. 
Hmm. Not to mention, what if someone right, gets COVID and then voluntarily stays home and never takes a test? Right. <laughs> so, hmm. so you know that. So COVID cases are going to be even more biased than COVID deaths. So what we say is, you know, if we just use deaths from all causes whatsoever, uh, there's much less likely to be any measurement bias. And so we say, look, if someone's dead, we know they're dead. Very unlikely to mismeasure that, at least in you know um, a, a developed country. You know, um, you can you know say, okay, maybe if we were doing this on an underdeveloped country with a large, you know, rural area without you know internet access, you know, maybe you could say, okay, maybe you know people can die without the government knowing. Hmm. Uh, but at least in a country like the United States, that's not um, a serious concern. Hmm. So, and then I will say, sorry, uh, there's a few other advantages though. So, so we by using total death from all causes, we can also say, what if Let's say maybe some people would have been spared from COVID by lockdowns, but what if they instead, let's say, become depressed and commit suicide? So you, or what if people don't go to the doctor? So maybe there's people who died of cancer or heart disease because they didn't go to their doctor's appointment. So I think if we take uh, the goal of saving life seriously, our goal isn't to reduce COVID deaths. Our goal is to reduce deaths per se. And if lockdowns saved some people but killed other people, Probably what our goal would be is to do, say, well, what will save the most lives on net? So if you could save 100 people from COVID, but cause 50 people to die from a heart attack, you might say, okay, well, look, we saved more people than we cost. Maybe, you know, plausibly that's worth it. On the other hand, if you save 100 people from COVID, but cause 200 people to die from heart attacks, then we'd say, okay, look, we killed more people than we saved. So what we do is we take deaths from all causes whatsoever, and then we subtract the average number of deaths from all causes whatsoever in the same state at the same time of year. And so the difference between those is excess mortality. And that's a commonly used measure in a lot of um, healthcare type studies is this measure of excess mortality. Hmm. So what you're doing is you take, there's a general baseline of people uh, who die every year. And what you're trying to do with excess mortality is figure out whether or not uh, these lockdowns prevented, if, if COVID is dangerous, for example, it kills more people, you get more excess mortality. That's the whole, that's the basics of it. So if it's going around and they use lockdowns, what you're looking for is um, hopefully you get less excess mortality in the areas that were, that were locked down versus the places that were not locked down. Um, that's why it matters. We, we can't, we can debate all day about whether or not people died of COVID or something else, but at the end of the day, if, if more people are dying, uh, presumably because COVID's exacerbating many of these health conditions and causing more deaths, uh, then you would hope for less excess mortality uh, when you are locked down. Is that is that a good summary of what exactly. you said? Exactly. Yeah. So, what do you think? Are there any uh, shortcomings to that way of, of looking at um, at uh, lockdowns? Could you maybe say that uh, perhaps? The, although you may have mitigated, if you, there was no effect on excess deaths per se, but maybe because you prevented the spread of COVID, that actually caused less people to die. Is that is that at all an, a possible argument against your study? Sorry, can can you say that again? So yeah, so perhaps if you're going to just take the aggregate excess deaths instead of looking specifically at COVID transmission right, right. deaths, right? Could maybe someone who's skeptical of your study say that? Okay, sure, excess deaths did not change, but the fact that we stopped COVID from spreading around because you did not measure spread, you just looked at excess deaths, perhaps we stopped more people from getting COVID and that itself uh, stopped less, ex that, that stopped the excess deaths from rising. I mean, I, I would say if they think that stopping the spread of COVID would stop 
excess deaths, then I would say, well, then that's exactly what we're measuring. So, like, we are directly measuring that. So I don't think that argument's plausible. I could see a person saying, well, what about the people who got COVID and didn't die, but they still got very bad symptoms that affected their life? And especially, you know, there's talk of what about long COVID? So let's say if a person might say, look, you know, there's people who know who were exhausted and, you know, stressed for a long period of time because of COVID, but they didn't die. So maybe lockdowns reduced that, to which I would say that's plausible. Um, but I would think at least they're probably correlated. If lockdowns prevent the spread of COVID and cause fewer people to get non-fatal COVID, it would probably also cause fewer people to get fatal COVID. Mm. So I would say at least they're, I would say... In, so maybe in pure principle, measuring COVID cases would be the best possible thing you can do. Because right, clearly, COVID cases are correlated with both fatal and non-fatal COVID cases. But that is so horribly mismeasured mm. um, that I would say by measuring deaths from all causes, we at least get a very solid, reliable measure of something that is still probably very strongly correlated with all the unmeasured things that we also care about. Mm. And that this is an issue that keeps coming up in the literature on lockdowns. There is a very clear mismatch between the quality of data, which tends to be very, very poor, especially when you get into things like case numbers for COVID, uh, and, it, and also changing over time. So uh, measurements of case numbers definitely got better as the pandemic progressed, but that's a large period of time in which uh, we, we essentially have nothing that's reliable. But uh, the mismatch between poor data and uh, poor evidence of that data illustrating the claimed effect that lockdowns work uh, with uh, some very strong, very aggressive claims that lockdowns did in fact work. Uh, so the literature that we're examining and critiquing here, uh, we're, we're basically pointing out a, a massive, pervasive shortcoming of that literature in that it, it mismatches weak data with strong, aggressive claims. Uh, that's not a good basis to do uh, scientific analysis or policy. You know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence is a, a longstanding principle, you know, to paraphrase the Carl Sagan uh, analysis there. Uh, and what we have are some very extraordinary claims on extremely flimsy, weak, and, uh, and possibly even self-contradictory evidence uh, that was being used to justify these policies. So I'm, I'm curious to know, like, what are some of these extraordinary claims and how wrong were they and why were they wrong? Yeah. Well, the big one is the Imperial model, uh, Imperial College model. Uh, you know, they announced in, in June of 2020 that they had saved millions of lives because their model projected a much worse pandemic than we experienced. And they said, well, obviously, we went into lockdown in March 2020. Uh, here we are two, much uh, two months later, and our model's uh, uh, projected death count has not been met. Uh, therefore, clearly, they claim that the lockdowns are responsible for that. Uh, but this is a, uh, a misuse of social science. It's not a clear causal analysis. In fact, it's a misrepresentation of the technique they were using. And we've seen that play out over and over again in subsequent studies. Uh, if you get into some of the particulars and the numbers, you find that they are um, examining periods of, uh, of analysis that do not, in fact, coincide with, with spikes in the coronavirus disease. So they aren't accounting for things like seasonality. Uh, they aren't accounting for uh, uh, regional geographies. And this is something we noticed in, in the United States. Uh, whether a state is in lockdown or not, there seem to be clear regional patterns to the outbreak. So uh, the famous one was March 2020. Uh, it burst onto the scene in the northeast United States. Then over the summer, uh, there was a cluster of states in the 
south. And then again, the next winter, it's kind of a, a, a Midwestern cluster that emerges of, uh, of COVID outbreaks. And it seems that geography may be the bigger uh, determinant here than uh, whether those states had lockdowns or not. Uh, and you wouldn't know that by reading quite a few of the, the, uh, the studies. They, they aren't accounting for major, highly plausible, and possibly attested confounding variables uh, to this, this neat and tidy model claim that, uh, that lockdowns directly reduce coronavirus cases. Let me just add, um, you know, this is something it's, it's uh, I think, understood by good social scientists in general, but especially by economists, because yeah. we probably have to deal with it the most, is the issue of um, what's called the chief problem of causal inference, that you can never know... Um, the true treatment effect of, of anything because you only observe the universe where what happened happened. You never observe the alternate universe where the thing that you're studying didn't happen. So you always have to find some causal inference strategy where you can somehow get a reasonable estimate of um, what the effect of some intervention was, whether the intervention is a law that's passed or, you know, let's say you want to know what's the economic effect of an earthquake. Well, right, the earthquake happened in the city, it happened. You can never observe the universe where that earthquake didn't hit that city, let's say. Mm. And so economists are well aware of this um, because we know that we, we can't conduct controlled experiments in economics, typically. We can't say, like, let's have a universe where, you know, Franklin Roosevelt passes the New Deal <laughs> and a universe where he doesn't pass the New Deal and compare the two United States. It's like, okay, so you, you have, for example, the United States before the New Deal, and then the United States during the New Deal and the United States after the New Deal. Mm. Where clearly you can't say like, well, after the New Deal, you know, after World War II and the New Deal were over, you know, the, the uh, United States, you know, economy grew. So like, therefore, the New Deal, you know, depressed the economy. It's like, mm. well, yeah, but like during the New Deal, we also had the Great Depression. Like, clearly, like the United States is changing over time in ways other than just this law. So like, you can't just do a, a naive before and after. Right. Or let's say, um, you know, you're looking at unemployment and like a president, new president gets elected and you say, oh, after that president got elected, unemployment went up or down. It's like, yeah, but other things in the economy were changing, too. You can't just look at this naive before and after. So economists will often do things like, for example, what's called a difference in difference analysis. We say, well, let's take, let's say, two cities, one passed a policy and one didn't. Let's take the difference between them after the policy was passed. And the difference between them before the policy was passed. Mm. And now the, the let's take one difference minus the other difference. Because we're saying, look, things are changing over time in both cities. So we can't just do a before and after. But we can say, well, if both cities already started out differently, and they also ended up differently, but how much more differently did they end up mm. than they started? So that's like one example of the kind of approach that economists and other social scientists in general will take. And there's a lot of other what are called causal inference methods. Hmm. But what's common to them all is this realization uh, that you need a serious strategy for admitting the fact that we aren't conducting a, a randomized controlled trial where we can just say, well, since on average the treatment you know, is being assigned randomly, we can just say what's the average of outcome in one group, what's the average outcome in the other group, subtract one from the other, and there we're done. Hmm. So this deference that you're... This deference to basically what is like real life, you know, the messiness yeah. of real life. Is this is there a fundamental when you're going through the literature? Is there a fundamental difference between economic analysis and epidemiology? Epidemiology uh, when it comes to how they go about using these studies for lockdown efficacy. Well, 
this is one of the critiques, the implicit critiques we make in the paper, uh, but I'll state it out, outright here, is that uh, I would argue the epidemiology profession is mired in a bit of a, uh, a rut, a statistical dark age. Uh, they're, they're using uh, causal inference assumptions that were developed in the 1960s as kind of like a checklist of eyeballing it. Uh, when we did not have as sophisticated techniques, even though their models have definitely advanced, uh, but the causal inference techniques are all uh, uh, done on an informal basis, uh, which really does come down to what Michael was describing here of, of just looking at a before and ac after and automatically assuming that that indicates uh, the treatment was caused by uh, the intervening event, uh, which is just, just inappropriate, uh, uh, bad um, uh, social science. Uh, what we find is that a lot of the other uh, academic disciplines, and, and yes, econom uh, economists have been kind of at the forefront of this, but it's also true of political science, it's true of elements of public health uh, and public policy, uh, have used far more sophisticated techniques uh, to actually get at this problem of causal inference that doesn't seem to have penetrated very deeply into the epidemiology literature. And one of the things that we reference in the paper is uh, if you look at the citation counts of the comparatively fewer number of studies that use some sort of a causal uh, identification strategy, uh, they tend to be less cited than the papers that do this back of the envelope. I'm going to project something with a model and subtract the difference from reality, uh, the model calibration stuff. So uh, uh, it's, we really have developed the literature where the worst uh, causal inference techniques are becoming the most cited in the epidemi epidemiology journals. Uh, so part of our paper's purpose here is to try to, uh, uh, to reset that on a stronger footing and actually introduce some causal inference techniques uh, into the discussion uh, and into the form of analysis that we're doing to determine this hugely important question of whether lockdowns work or not. Well, one thing is there's the um, that the meta-analysis by remind me the names of the uh, is uh, Hanky at all is the uh, yes thank you Hanky yeah. so um, like there's a recent um, meta-analysis of whatever studies have already been done and they explicitly say like, we're only going to include papers that have like some sort of uh, causal inference or empirical test we're not going to use like these simple naive you know model uh, assumption tests. And so then there was a response to it by several epidemiologists, and one of them complained that this meta-analysis only considers papers that is a, quote, use the methods of economics. And, you know, they took that as a criticism, like, oh, why are these economists only counting papers that use economic methods? To which, like, Phil and I would say, well, because it's the economic methods, it's not the economic method per se, it's the causal inference statistical method. Yeah. It just happens to be particularly common in economics because economists understand very well for decades now, we don't know how to run randomized controlled trials in markets, <laughs> you know, that's or, or in law and policy. That is not how the world works. And so we, we had to grapple with this problem a long time ago. Yeah. You know, even more fundamentally, uh, lockdowns are a policy question. Uh, yes, they have a medical element to them. Uh, yes, they're related to a disease, but they are a policy question. That's what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions. Uh, I would defer to a medical doctor on telling me, uh, um, you know, the chem chemical composition of a new drug that is designed to treat uh, a certain ailment. I'd also probably defer to that doctor on assessing and analyzing uh, the performance of that drug. But when you get into the public policy space, when you move away from the hospital and into the legislature or the National Health Institute's 
uh, bureaucracy. You are moving um, the decision-making away from strict medical uh, professionals assessing uh, how to treat a disease and moving it into the hands of, uh, of public officials. And that is as much an economic question as uh, anything else we do from tax law and tax policy to environmental policy uh, to minimum wages to uh, how we design city streets. Uh, I mean, these are all questions that uh, are open in the public space. Uh, I mean, to use another analogy, uh, it would be akin to saying that only architects can comment on zoning regulation uh, to assert that uh, we must stick to the architecture literature. Uh, well, the, the reality here is zoning affects quite a bit more than how uh, buildings are designed and how they aesthetically look. Hmm. So on that note, what you, I think that's a perfect point to uh, talk about is moving from essentially the hospital, the research lab, into the NIH, into the CDC, you know, exercising the levers of power. Do you, do you think um, people like Dr. Fauci and uh, his, his allies in the various arms of the government, were, were they really looking at, they, they've, they've mentioned the term, follow, we've heard the term follow the science about a hundred times right? already. So where do you think, do you think they're operating from that flawed perspective you just pointed out? Were they just thinking the world is my research lab and you're all just living in it? And why do you think they, they use, do you think there's um, more of a political aspect to that? Like, why do you think they, they went that route instead of the route that you just prescribed? Well, and this is the open question that we've seen in Fauci's performance. He likes to project the public rhetoric that he is the objective scientist in the lab that's only following the evidence and is adjusting his policy prescriptions based on the evidence. But, uh, you know, Ethan, you, you and I both know we were... Uh, deeply involved in the Freedom of Information Act requests uh, that examined how Fauci reacted to things like the Great Barrington Declaration, which was an argument against lockdowns. Mm. And, uh, you know, we saw directly in the emails between him and Francis Collins that it's not evidence that's driving his decision-making. Quite the contrary, uh, it was political talking points. Collins uh, sent out basically an order to all of uh, his top team, including Fauci, says uh, uh, we, we need a, a campaign to discredit these, quote, fringe scientists that are questioning the efficacy of lockdowns. And then, uh, then you start seeing uh, in the later emails over the course of the next week, where is Fauci going to to get his evidence to argue against the, quote, unquote, fringe scientists? It's not scientific journals. It's not statistical analysis. It is uh, opening up political magazines like The Nation. It is going to Wired magazine and reading what a journalist uh, parroted back to him as, as uh, political talking points uh, in favor of lockdowns and against uh, uh, the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, so so you, you have this weird internal circularity in the way that Fauci has conducted himself where he has a strong political opinion. He's claiming it's a scientific position, but when he's pressed to deliver on the scientific evidence behind that position, he goes and cherry picks reports out of the popular press and media uh, that are basically political commentaries rather than statistical analysis. Uh, so it becomes an internal echo chamber in the NIH of reaffirming its own existing political position with other political content and political pieces. Uh, so it's quite the opposite of doing policy based on science. It is trying to manipulate the scientific discussion based on policy preferences. And I think, unfortunately, Fauci is a 40-year political operator. Um, I think he's more 
uh, akin to uh, like a J. Edgar Hoover style guy that's been at the head of a bureaucracy rather than a, um, a scientific expert these days. And he knows how to play the political system. He knows how to speak to the media. Uh, he knows how to, uh, quote unquote, win his arguments in the public arena of talking points, not in the, uh, the scientific journals and debates over statistical analysis. And unfortunately, that's the world that we have been operating in for the last two years. Mm. And when it comes to a youth, so essentially he was, he was claiming he was using science, he say right. all the science, but then he was deriving many of his talking points from op-eds um, and outlets that clearly lean, lean a certain political direction. So how, how does this even happen, right? I'm, I'm still perplexed. Like, obviously, yeah. we're, we're, we know enough history to know this happens all the time, but how, how exactly, do you, do, you know, do you have your own story about how uh, Fauci goes from, you know, this respected doctor at the NIH, probably, I don't know what he specializes in, but I'm sure he's very good at whatever he specializes in, to, to this figure who's essentially acting like a politician. Yeah, well, I think it's a public choice story because it's a question of the incentives he faces. You know, I'd go all the way back to 1983 and I'd point out that Fauci bungled the AIDS uh, crisis when it, uh, it first burst onto the scene. Uh, he was giving all sorts of contradictory advice. Uh, he went and gave a bunch of media interviews that uh, strongly suggested HIV or AIDS as it was uh, basically known at the time because they hadn't isolated the virus. He thought that AIDS could be passed by like sitting around the dinner table and uh, if your, your brother-in-law is there and has AIDS, he could pass it on to uh, the baby sitting across the table. And uh, this caused a major public health scare. It turns out that there was no evidence or basis for that theory, but Fauci went on national TV and uh, fired off his talking points of the moment. Uh, so I'd argue this is a guy that's been doing this for 40 years. Was he a, a, um, a capable scientist and doctor before that? Um, who knows? I mean, I, I, I assume uh, he was trained well, and I assume he had substantive research contributions. But I think as soon as he got to the bureaucracy, the incentives he faced were no longer uh, doing laboratory analysis. Now they are uh, ensuring that your agency remains uh, publicly viable. It's a continuous stream of tax money. Uh, it's also as he rose to the top of that agency, he becomes the decider of who gets scientific grants and who doesn't get grants. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a real conflict of interest here that the person that's making health policy and making expert analyses is also the person that controls the purse strings for uh, what types of topics get research, which scientists get research money. Uh, you know, that cre creates very uh, uh, severe and perverse incentives because now if uh, you're a scientist working at a university lab and you're dependent on the NIH for money and you have a new study, a new statistical study or analysis that uh, is directly contradicting what Fauci is saying in his press conferences and your budget next year depends on submitting a whole slew of NIH grants for your entire team and Fauci's the person that has veto power over that. I mean, you do the math there. Uh, it is a, a uh, inherent mixture of the political elements of his job with the scientific purpose of his job and I think it's created a very severe distortion and very perverse incentives on how our, our national health bureaucracies um, currently operate. Hmm. And that reminds me of, uh, there's always a common saying that lockdowns didn't really end because they're proven wrong. They're ending because elections are coming up. Right. Um, and I've also, I'm, I've, I've, you know, I've been doing enough research conferences to actually see the empirical data to, you know, the correlate locked, lifting lockdowns and mass mandates with upcoming elections and whatnot. Um, but back to 
uh, your paper. So how confident are you, especially Michael, how confident are you are you in um, basically the, the, the principled research profession and coming around to uh, really apply more accurate, more, more appropriate um, ways of looking at studying lockdowns? Um, <clears throat> I'm going to be optimistic. I think that as time goes on and more empirical studies come out and maybe as COVID is farther and farther in the rearview mirror, um, that people will kind of in retrospect start you know, to realize like, oh, the statistics don't actually bear out the predictions. Right, you know, people's willingness to admit something, you know, it depends on how much of a, um, a stake, you know, they have in it. So I think once, you know, COVID is in the rear view mirror, people will have less stake in whether lockdowns work or not. You know, when mm -hmm. you're in the middle of it, um, you know, emotions and personal interests, uh, you know, can override that. What I would still, though, be concerned about is, okay, maybe in retrospect, I think eventually we're going to admit uh, assuming the empirical evidence, you know, continues to, uh, bear this out, right? Cause I want to, you know, we're one study, we're, we're doing one study, anything in statistics, you always want multiple studies, each with a different method or a different data set or different assumptions. You want them all to ultimately converge on the same result. Um, cause any one statistical study, um, well, I'll say this. in statistics, the definition of unbiasedness says if, if a statistical method is unbiased, it will, on average, give the correct result. So, like, to give an example of what this means, um, I know I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, but I'll, I'm, I'll, I'll bring this back somewhere. Let's say I wanted to know what the average uh, weight of a student in the classroom was. Well, if I picked one single student out of the classroom and said the average weight of the student is equal to the weight of this one student I just picked, if I did that, let's say in multiple universes, if every you know, parallel universe, I did that same thing, but I picked a different student in each one, the average of all that would be correct, right? The average of picking one student at a time is equal to the average of everyone. So that would be an, picking one person at random and assuming that everyone is like this one person you picked is unbiased because on average it's correct. But obviously in any one particular case, you're going to be off by a lot. Hmm. So any one statistical study even if it is unbiased, that only means that if you repeated that method an infinite number of times, you would on average get the correct result. But you don't know if your one particular study is correct or not, so you want to see other people replicating it and see if people can continually and repeatedly get the same result you got. So, assuming other people get the same result we got, and we repeatedly find that lockdowns didn't work, then I would hope that in the long run, people will, in retrospect, admit, okay, lockdowns didn't work. What I would be afraid of is what about the future? Because we already thought that lockdowns didn't work for the flu, then suddenly COVID hits and suddenly we forget everything we thought we knew. So what happens if we admit that lockdowns didn't uh, work against COVID, but then 10 years from now, there's some other pandemic. Are we going to forget everything we learned about COVID? That's what I'm less optimistic about. Hmm. And this brings, uh, I'd like to really wrap up on that note, which I think is probably the most important one. Also a little frightening when you mentioned uh, when people start to care less about lockdowns, that's when we'll get rigorous independent analysis. And uh, I spend most of my time uh, researching authoritarian countries like China. And this is, you know, China, this is exactly what's happening in the sense that the so-called independent experts, not just when it comes to the medical profession, but 
economics, antitrust, well, every single part of the Chinese bureaucratic apparatus is subservient to uh, the larger political goals of the party. And we saw a snippet of what that looks like here in the U.S. with COVID. That seems like mm -hmm. what we just saw. So given that, you know, we were already seeing in the horizon, there's monkeypox or whatever it's called coming up, but not even just, you know, diseases, but monetary policy. Now we're seeing people, you know, pressure to use it to alleviate inequality or fight climate change, antitrust the same way. So when we're approaching topics like diseases, monetary policy, law and economics, you know, very academic topics, and that the, where the political class, people like Fauci, people like President Biden, will have to draw upon the academics to support uh, their, their policy prescriptions. How can we as the general public go about uh, parsing through what is bad information, what is good information, and how can we fight to basically separate uh, academia, independent research from the political process, if at all possible? Yeah. Well, the funding connection is a huge complication to that, and that's what we saw directly with Fauci. And when Fauci and Collins tried to suppress anti-lockdown messaging in the public, they also were sending a signal to researchers. Uh, what it means is we need robust research institutions outside of the direct channel of political funding, uh, outside of the direct control of the government. Uh, you know, you mentioned the Chinese uh, counterexample as, as a glimpse of, of how things can go not only wrong, but very, very wrong. Uh, keep in mind that up until about a month or two ago, China was widely touted, even among people that weren't advocating the Chinese government's uh, uh, style of uh, conducting itself, it was widely touted as a COVID success story. Uh, remember, they had the original outbreak, uh, but then after about March 2020, they had claimed to have gotten it under control. Uh, and that claim was uh, even represented in the official government statistics. I think there was like between March 2020 and about two months ago, there were no COVID deaths in China that were publicly reported in the government statistics. And you had uh, both scientists and political commentators here in the United States saying, see, look what China did. They stopped COVID with harsh lockdowns. And uh, part of the critique that was made here is that even though we enacted lockdowns of our own, they weren't uh, stringent enough or uh, too many people were, were violating the lockdowns by going out in public or uh, uh, not doing non-essential activities. And there even became like uh, the, the social scorn that was uh, uh, on full display for almost two years. If you went to the grocery store and you didn't keep social distance and didn't have a mask, uh, people would come up and get in your face and yell at you and, and, and say, you're, you're killing my grandma. Uh, just by being out in public. And uh, this created kind of a, a perception that even though we did lockdowns, we didn't do real lockdowns because they weren't severe enough. And uh, China had, in fact, done the lockdowns and see, they, they defeated COVID. Well, it turned out it was all smoke and mirrors. The Chinese government was uh, almost certainly misreporting and underreporting COVID deaths. They were manipulating their stats. And now what we're seeing is, even though they had dra draconian lockdowns that they've reimposed and expanded to cities like Shanghai, uh, it's done almost nothing in stopping the trajectory and, and spread of this disease. So one of the most severe lockdowns in the world doesn't work uh, in that real-time story. And the narrative that this is simply a failure of political will in the United States to go uh, as severe as China did uh, starts to come under scrutiny for that reason. Mm -hmm. What I would say more generally is, you know, if you see someone, you know, reporting a certain policy work, you want to ask questions like, are they, um, are they, is it based on, you know, a model or is it based on statistical data? 
Yeah. And in that model, is it simply, if, if it's based on statistical data, is it just this naive before and after? Like, oh, you know, unemployment, uh, you'll see this all like, oh, you know, unemployment was really high, and then someone got elected, and oh, look, then unemployment fell. Or, oh, look, gas prices were low, and then someone got elected, and now gas prices are high. So clearly, you know, is it something naive like that, or is it something more sophisticated, like, say, we had two cities or two countries that each instituted a different policy. Let's look at the difference before and the difference after, or something like that. So let's say if someone had, like, let's say two provinces of a uh, country, what, and let's say one imposed a lockdown and the other didn't, and someone said, okay, we looked at, you know, the difference in COVID deaths right after and right before. I'd be like, okay, that at least is, you know, that's getting somewhere. Um, that, because for example, that would account for seasonality. Let's say, you know, let's say it's March and you impose a lockdown and then you look at April. It's like, oh, look, fewer people died in April than March. It's like, okay, or maybe it's because it got warmer. Hmm. But if you have two cities, it's like, okay, look, we have two cities, one with a lockdown and one with not. They both got warmer. Hmm. So if we take the difference after and the difference before and subtract the difference from the difference, you're implicitly accounting for the fact that in both places it got warmer and there might've already been a common trend. But you're, if they both have the same common trend, subtracting one from the other subtracts the trend out. So just asking basic questions like that and applying uh, some smell test yeah. um, can go a long way. Yeah. Mm. And I guess I'd summarize the two of your, your comments as basically principled, intelligent citizens using their First Amendment rights to essentially call BS when they see it. Uh, very classic American practice, as we all know. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining, joining me on the show today. Thanks. Thank you. If you really liked what you heard today, make sure to follow AIER on all its various channels, such as Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, as well as check out our website at AIER.org. If you really liked what you heard and you want to support more cutting-edge researchers like these two, make sure to become a donor. All that information and more can be found at AIER.org. Thank you.